Good morning, saints. It is always a blessing to be in the house of the Lord with you and to bring the Word of God to you. I invite you to turn to the book of Galatians. This is likely the first epistle or letter that Paul wrote as an apostle in your New Testament. As we discussed last week, the gospel was spreading. It was taking root in the Gentile world. Churches were being established. Elders were being appointed. And there was a lot of joy in these churches. Even in the midst of great persecution from the Roman Empire, the church was flourishing. The gospel was transforming lives. In a plot twist that is entirely consistent with how God works and how the gospel works. The primary mouthpiece of the gospel, of the good news, was the Apostle Paul. Paul, who was formerly a Pharisee of great stature, He was beloved and respected and well-known in his circles. And he was absolutely opposed to the message of the gospel. And he did not appreciate the leaders of this new movement that they called the way. They would refer to Christians as this little Jewish sect. And it was his personal ambition to stamp them and it out. Now, Paul's conversion, as you know, was sudden. He was on the way to harass Christians in a country. By God's grace, he was converted. The Lord saves Paul and commissions him as an apostle. As one who would preach the word of God, the truth of God, who would bring the gospel, who would plant many churches, who would ultimately give us much of our New Testament. Now, as the wonderful news of the grace of God was spreading, and as churches were being established, as lives were being transformed, the all-too-predictable demonic opposition began to take place. When God establishes his truth and speaks his truth, we should never be surprised when our adversary, the devil, presents and promotes his cheap alternative. Generation after generation, the whisper from the Garden of Eden continues. Yea, hath God said. Did God really say that? Did he mean what? I know that's what he said, but did he mean that? Maybe he meant this over here. He will cast doubt and deceive regarding the truth. He cannot replace the truth. But he will slide his truth right next to the truth. And he will make it look very similar 
Scripture tells us he masquerades as an angel of light. Yet we know from the lips of Jesus that the gates of hell will not ever conquer the church. Now, the demonic fake in this case came in the form of the Judaizers. As we spoke last week, they were religious leaders. They were Jewish religious leaders. And they pretended to be sent by the apostles. And they insisted that they had the true message of Jesus, of God, of the gospel. They absolutely sought to undercut the authority of Paul as an apostle. That was their method. Don't believe him. Believe us. He's an outsider. If these Gentiles are going to be brought into God's family, that's fine. But they need to keep our law. They need to obey the law. That's how they get in. And that's how they stay in. It's nothing more than performance-based religion. Ultimately, salvation in their mind, the Christian life, it was all about works, and it was not about grace. So Paul is writing to the Galatians to make sure that they do not succumb to this demonic counterfeit. Legalism sucks the very life out of a Christian. Legalism replaces grace with this idea of performance-based relationship. Those of you who have grown up or been exposed to legalistic churches, you know the deep wound, the wounds that this leaves Because you always feel guilty. You never feel that you've done enough. You never feel that you are enough. Because it's about you. All of this is entirely counter to the beautiful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the gospel... Shame and guilt are not at play. We are not accepted or loved by God because of our performance. In fact, we are loved and accepted by God despite our performance. We are welcomed fully and finally into the family of God by grace. Indeed, it is that gospel term, adopted. We are adopted into God's forever family, and we have a place at the table because of Jesus. Now, we affirm that when, a Holy, when, when the Holy Spirit is living inside of a person, when he or she is born again, that we will see the fruit of, Of that in their lives. But here's the catch. Our good works. Are not to impress God. 
but rather the good works that we do flow from the fact that we know we are fully accepted by God. We are cognizant of the brevity of our life. And we know the tremendous price that Jesus paid on the cross. That our Savior paid on the cross for us. It is the Holy Spirit working in and through us, bearing fruit in and through us. Now, the dominant themes, as we mentioned last week in Galatians, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It should come as no surprise that this is what Paul speaks to in his letter. He speaks about legalism, the counterfeit gospel, and the opposite of that, which is freedom in Christ. Every Christian should be well acquainted with Paul's words to the Galatians. It gives life. There is such beauty in this letter. So let's read together Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches in Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now please note right away that in contrast to other letters that Paul writes, there is no commendation for the Galatians. He does not highlight things that they're doing well. He does not pat them on the back. This letter contains wonderful and beautiful truth. However, it's not a happy letter for the Galatians. Paul gets right down to business. Right here in this introduction, you can see exactly what this letter will be all about. It's what every New Testament, really, book is all about. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is about God's unfathomable grace to us. It is about the staggering New Testament proposition that men, women, and children can be fully reconciled to God. 
that we can be completely forgiven of all of our sins and adopted into God's family apart from any effort or deeds on our part. Now, ask yourself this question. Could there possibly be any better message? Anything that is more good news than what I just stated. Because that's the tone that Paul's going to take as he writes to the Galatians. Now, from a human perspective, here comes the tricky part. Paul was well known as the one who persecuted the church. He and the church, they weren't on good friends. I mean, he and the apostles weren't like, you know, buddy, buddy. But now that he's converted, he's also left a bad taste in the mouths of his colleagues, his former colleagues, the Pharisees, the religious establishment. Because he literally jumped ship and joined the very group that they were all trying to stamp out. This little rogue of Christians. Little Christs, followers of the way. So the apostle has two problems that he needs to address right off the bat. The first one is to convince the Christians that he's a good guy. They're naturally suspicious of him. The early Christians now had to believe the report that Paul is one of them. While at the same time, Paul had to deal with his former friend group, a little friend group, you know, the Pharisees and all them, who resented him immensely. But keep this in mind. He was not merely and not only telling the Galatians that he was one of them, that he was now a believer in Jesus Christ, which is a part of what he was saying. But he was also telling them that God has set him apart as an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle in the New Testament, with a, we'll say with a capital A, is one who performed miracles. God affirmed his message through the miraculous, signs and wonders. He was a witness of the resurrected Christ and would be entrusted with the truths of the gospel. In other words, he spoke with apostolic authority. He spoke as the Jews were accustomed to hearing the prophets say, like Jeremiah, thus says the Lord. There was weight to what Paul had to say. So all of these things are being called into question. Paul had it coming from both directions. The believers had to be persuaded, but the Judaizers, they would seek at every turn to discredit Paul and to discredit 
not only his message, but his position as an apostle. Don't ever think that when the Lord commissions or calls you or puts something before you, that you will not feel opposition. You will not experience that. That's the nature of living in this fallen world. So Paul begins his letter, and again, this is likely one of his first, if not the first, by asserting his position as an apostle. He was not just merely voicing his opinions about philosophy and about religion. He was coming with the full authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting about Paul's words in his statement is how he directly says that Jesus Christ set him apart. I'll tell you why this is important. In modern days, there are many who would say something along the lines of, well, I like a lot of what Jesus has to say. I like those red letters. I like, you know, love your neighbor, all of those things. But I don't like what Paul has to say about all kinds of practical issues. I don't like him at all. If you've ever been in a higher institution of learning, as they call it, this is a very common theme. Jesus is good, Paul is problematic. But here's the catch. We're never given that option to divorce the two. We are never given the choice of choosing who to believe as if one is pitted against the other. He specifically says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, personally commissioned and sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are duty-bound to listen to him as one who speaks the very words of God himself. It's what we call the inspiration of Scripture of the New Testament. Inspired by the Holy Spirit and set apart to establish and build up churches and Christians in our most holy So in the inspired writings of the New Testament, these are the very words of God. Now let's look at his greetings, his salutation. We must never sleep on these words. It's easy, it's tempting, as you read your Bible, to just kind of skip over the first part because, well, you see it a lot. He says, grace and peace. To you. It was common for writers in those days to begin with some niceties, to say some nice things to the people that they were writing to. Indeed, this is what you see in your New Testament. But what you see is something of substance, they're not simply nice words. What you see in the New Testament often, the epistles, they go far beyond nice words. They're not just nice things that they're saying. 
that we want to speed through. Notice how his words are constructed. Because it is something you will see elsewhere in the New Testament. He begins by saying grace to you. If you notice at the end, he says grace will be with you. You see, as we read his letter, as we read God's word, as we reflect and meditate and think and choose to believe what is said, God's grace helps us and is shown to us. At the end of the letter, he says, grace be with you. You need to know that when you root yourself in God's truth, God's grace is super abundant. So what exactly is grace? This word that we encounter often in God's word. When we understand the full weight, the true meaning of grace in the New Testament, it becomes impossible to breeze through these comments. God's grace is the very foundation of everything that we stand on. It is our confidence and it is our comfort. And we are nothing without the grace of God. Simply put, grace is receiving what we do not deserve. Grace and mercy are very closely related, but they're actually not the same thing technically. Mercy is not getting what you absolutely deserve. Grace is similar, but it is getting what you don't deserve. People will also often use the acronym, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And that is very consistent with what we see in the New Testament. So I invite you to turn to the book of Romans briefly, Romans chapter 4. Grace is getting something that you do not Deserve. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 5. This is a good summary of the gospel. Actually, I'll begin in verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. When you work for something and you get paid for that, well, that's what you expect. Verse 5, the gospel is different. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him or trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's the gospel. That's grace. I don't work for this. I don't earn it. 
but it is gifted to me when I put my confidence and my trust in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul also in his introduction conveys not only grace, but peace. The New Testament has much to say about God's shalom or his peace in the gospel. These are not just fluffy words. There is something very specific about the peace of God. When we think of the gospel, the peace that we experience is actually peace with God. That is what the word reconciliation means. It's why it is such an important and powerful gospel term. We are reconciled with God and we are at peace with him. If you're still in Romans, look at chapter five. The first two verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, not by our works, we have peace with God. There's peace. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. There's peace and grace. And look at what he says. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Remember when we spent a few months talking about the glory of God? We rejoice in it. There is this anticipation knowing that the glory of God is ours. We know him. And we will be with him in glory forever. Now going back to Galatians, I want you to notice a detail about the word order that Paul uses because he inverts the order that he often uses in a greeting. Notice in verse one, he says that he is an apostle, not from men, nor through men, uh, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God, the father. Verse three. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see in those two sentences right near each other, he inverts the order. That is a powerful, powerful statement to the deity of Christ. You can switch the order and it's the same. Now I'd like to focus on the meat of these verses. These verses are so gospel rich, very fitting for us this morning as we observe communion together. I like to frame these remaining words with the question that we asked a couple of years ago. Why did Jesus die? 
That was our sermon series. We spent a few months on it. Why did Jesus die? We cannot escape the fact that your New Testament, every page of it, is stained by the blood of Jesus. It is all about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the dominating theme in God's word. So we need to be crystal clear as to why Jesus died in the first place. This is not a secondary matter. The theme of Paul's letter to the Galatians revolves around the death of Christ. So what does Paul say about the death of Christ? Saints, don't miss this. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. Do you see evil around you in this present age? Don't be deceived into thinking that life was always a lot better before this generation. Evil has always been present. We see evil in every single generation. Paul's words are just applicable now as they were then. And they mirror what Peter said on Pentecost. He said, save yourselves from this wicked generation. But I want you to see this detail. Jesus did not simply give you something. He gave himself. That is the significance of Christmas and the advent of Christ. It's why it is so crucial. It's why Christians in every generation have a special recognition for the birth of Christ. Because the birth of Christ is unlike any other birth in the Bible. It was prophesied by prophets of old. It was announced by the angels. It was spectacular and miraculous in its execution. Do you know anyone else who was born of a virgin? You see, the part of Jesus giving himself to us is first that he had to come. That was no small event. Emmanuel, God with us. In the midst of our chaos, our racing thoughts, our heartache, our grief, our challenges, our physical illnesses, in the midst of the evil that is so pervasive, God with us. There is such beauty and power in these words. He gave of himself so fully and so completely. Philippians tells us that he became obedient to to death. You don't see that said of anyone else. That they were obedient to death. Because death is stamped on every single one of us. Genetically speaking, we're dying. Ah, but saints, he did not merely come to be obedient to death, but rather death on a cross. When Christ gave himself for us, he did so so fully and freely and finally. He did so through much anguish and suffering and mental stress and heartache. And he did it because he loves us. Fellow saints, Christ met us at our greatest point of need. 
He did not give himself to us so we could just become better people. He didn't give himself to us just to show us a nice way to live. He came because we were dead in our sins. We had no hope of our own. He came to bring forgiveness of sins and to restore us to God. He came to gift us with eternal life and for us to be the recipients of God's scandalous grace, a spiritual inheritance. He came full of grace and truth for our sake. Dear saints, he tells us all of this was by the will of God our Father and to his glory. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus came because God sent him. The Father sent him. He loved us. But Jesus came as well because he loves us. He came willingly. The love that has been shown to us is beyond description. To the dejected sinner, the gospel tells us that we are loved and accepted apart from how we have lived our lives. To the bereaved, the gospel frees us to mourn, but it does not leave us without hope. To the discouraged, the distraught, the burdened, and the distressed, the gospel breeds hope and comfort. We are a child of the king and nothing in heaven or on earth can undo that. Nothing in all of creation can ever, will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To that end, the great section in Romans begins with the declaration at the end of chapter 5 that we reign in life through Jesus Christ. We are seated with him in the heavenlies, and that is our position in Christ. All of this, my fellow believers, is to the glory of God. This is God's work, and it's not ours. It's his will, not ours. When we preach to the glory of God, we saw that God alone is the one who is glorious. His glory is seen in his immortality, his eternality, in his omniscience, in his omnipotence, in his holiness, in his wisdom, in his immutability. All the glory of his. But when we are confronted with the lavish grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we see our Savior bleeding on the cross... When we see the hundreds of prophecies that were fulfilled in his coming. When we think of the eternal perspective. When we think that my sins, not in part, but the whole, are nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. What have we left but to ascribe glory to God? And this is not just one solitary act of worshiping him, say on a Sunday morning. It's our entire life. It must be the disposition of our heart to serve God, to be red hot in our zeal for serving him and to be selfless and intentional when we love the people around us. Now, please notice this last word in our passage this morning. What is it? 
Amen. So be it. Now you might be noticed, you might be used to seeing this maybe at the end of a section that you're reading, closing the thought out. That's not what Paul does. He says amen, and now he's going to send six, he's going to spend six chapters enumerating upon what he just said in those few verses. The context of the beauty of the gospel. Paul is dumbfounded that the Galatians are beginning to listen to these Judaizers and going back to a work-based Christian life. I mean, you've just had the finest affair. How can you possibly go back to lesser things? My dear friends, it is human nature to revert back to our old ways. Even when we are in possession of something so pristine and so beautiful and glorious and transforming, we get sidetracked. We get pulled in the wrong direction. And those of you who have experienced legalism, you know full well it's a death sentence. There's no life in it. You're constantly having to prove yourself to others that you're good enough or to God. Nobody wants that. My prayers that our time in Galatians would be a huge encouragement to you. Not only that, but that you would be rooted and grounded in the truth of the gospel and in the love that God has for you. That you would experience freedom in the death of your soul. That you would know that you are loved. That you would be inspired and motivated to serve the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. That the love of Christ would compel you to give yourselves selflessly to others. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for your unconditional love for us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, to your promises that you give us in your word. Thank you for the beauty and the power and the simplicity of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Lord, as we give our attention to this letter from Paul. We pray that the truth of the gospel would continue to transform us as we go deeper into the truth of it. That we would stand on this truth. That we would have great confidence believing what you say is true. Not only as a believer in Jesus, but as we walk with you, as we learn to walk with you, to serve you. That as a part of the gospel, we have been adopted into your family. Remind us, refresh us over and over again of that truth. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.